0: PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.
1: Welcome to the PA Books podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, we talk with Chad Lineweaver about his book, That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones, A History of Irving College.
0: This week on PA Books, Chad Lineweaver, author of That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones.
1: Chad Lineweaver is the author of That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones, A History of Irving College. Chad, where is where was Irving College?
2: It was in uh, downtown Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. So right on uh, between Simpson Street and, and Main Street, but uh, where Cytle Hospital is now.
1: How did you discover Irving College?
2: Um, I think, well, when I, I think when I was in uh, high school, um, you know, between Jubilee Day and other things, I think I would, you know, walk around downtown. Oh, aren't these old buildings neat? That type of thing. And I think I probably came across the um, uh, the old Irving Hall and Columbian Hall that were converted into apartments in the, uh, probably like about the '60s. And I thought, what? There was a college here, Mechanicsburg? When was this? Why did I not ever hear about this before? And I think that's probably was my first foray into it. And then um, the Simpson Library had a project. In the '90s, maybe the early to mid '90s, uh, when Christine Metcalf uh, was a the director there, and they ended up—they uh, had had a collection of Irving's materials for a number of years, and I think I saw news reports of that that they had oral histories done and they were preserving the collection and things like that. So I think all of that together, sort of uh, kept it in mind for me.
1: Well, let's kind of go back to the beginning. When was it founded, and what kind of school was it?
2: Uh, so it was founded in 1856. Um, the thing that has always kind of puzzled me is why Mechanicsburg? I mean, there was definitely a movement in the in the mid-19th century uh, to start establishing higher education for women. Public education uh, as a whole started earlier in the century and certainly for women a little, little bit later, but also as well. But there weren't colleges that women could attend. And I think there was this movement generally over the, over the whole country to sort of set up separate schools for women uh, to attend college and things like that. Some of them were much more, I would say, like a finishing school variety. So the early history of women's colleges in the country are a bit murky because some women's colleges called themselves colleges, but they really were just glorified high schools and others actually were trying to uh, put forth a lot more of like a rigorous curriculum and things like that. And that's a little bit what Irving was trying to do. So at the time that it was founded, I think there were a lot of, you know, local um, powers that be, so to speak, Solomon Gorgas, in particular, who had daughters. So I think to some degree he was interested in maybe having his daughters uh, do higher education as well as others. And so they actually were the first college in Pennsylvania to offer degrees in the arts and sciences. So they had a very, very strong charter. Um, But it wasn't unusual. There were definitely other... Um colleges around the state, Pittsburgh, um Philadelphia, and other things. Bryn Mawr was founded a little bit later around Philadelphia, and that still exists today. But um, I think there was definitely this movement to try to educate women. And the as I said, the interesting thing was this happening in Mechanicsburg. I think part of that may have been as akin to Dickinson. A lot of women's colleges developed alongside different men's colleges in the area. And Dickinson was a well-known school that was established. I think right after the American Revolution, if I remember correctly. And so I think that may have been sort of the draw to this area. And I think with enough local people like Solomon Gorgas interested in establishing a school, it probably was one step uh, after another that led to the initial founding.
1: You mentioned Solomon Gorgas. Who was he? How did he become interested in this subject?
2: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not 100% sure why he was interested in it. Uh, Again, other than the fact that he had daughters. (laughs) But he um, was a local... uh, person of of wealth in town. And, um, early on, he wanted to more or less try to, uh, set up something with, uh, the school and found it. And he was very active around things in mechanicsburg anyway. And keep in mind, like in the 1850s, mechanicsburg is just finally becoming a bit of like an established town. Um, it was incorporated in 1828 and there had been villages and parts of the town, you know, prior to that point. And, um, but yeah, it's a bit of a mystery exactly why. Um, I, I think it was just part of the movement that was going on. I think there were some progressive thinkers around the state, and he was one of them, and so he tapped into uh, uh, Reverend Marlott to be its first president. And um, the naming of the school is sort of interesting in the fact that he... Um, Irving, Washington Irving at the time, so the school is named after Washington Irving, who was pretty much the the Taylor Swift of his era, right? I mean, he was very, very well known, getting lots of accolades. He's probably the most famous American, maybe next to, you know, you know, Washington, Jefferson, you know, those by the time you get into the 19th century. And so he had all these kind of accolades and things. There are other schools actually named for him. And um, so I think that's why he was such a seminal figure that I think, you know, Gorgas and other people in McCansburg thought to name the school after him. Uh, to the research I've done, I've not. I've found that I think Irving tended to, Washington Irving rather, tended to try to eschew some of these uh, accolades and things like that. There are letters that survive from him saying, oh, I appreciate you want to name your school after me, but I'm not interested. <laughs> you know, he was supposedly serving on the board of trustees and he supposedly gave a full set of his books uh, to the library at Irving. I didn't find evidence of that other than. Decades later when the things uh, didn't exist. So my he may very well have done that uh, But I don't think he probably served on the board. Uh, he was such a popular figure that I think he just uh, It was more of an honor to him uh, For for the naming of the school, but How
1: many students did it have in the early years?
2: Uh, not a lot. So I mean certainly under 50 um It was one of those types of things where the school was really trying to, I think, establish a footing in something that was new everywhere, right? Um, So I think the mindset of the founders was really to try to, like, okay, let's try to. I think the ultimate goal was like, let's let's develop a classical education, Latin, Greek, um, literature, British, American literature, things like that. Let let's establish that because we're doing it for for men, let's do it for women as well. I don't think there was as much of an emphasis on sciences um, and that type of thing. That would probably come later and at other schools. But um, early on, I think it was sort of like, hey, we need to supplement women's education, and we want want them to start to get degrees and things as well. So they kind of started with almost like the liberal arts, uh, classical education, uh, which over time started to decay a little bit. But um, I think that was the focus of a lot of uh, women's colleges to start off with. Um, certainly colleges that were linked with men's schools like Radcliffe or Barnard um, or even College of New Jersey here um, which was uh, uh, or uh, sorry not College of New Jersey, um, Douglas College which got linked to Rutgers. I think was all definitely a movement to sort of like try to at least provide some level of training for women but early on it was a bit Slipshot. Some some schools were meeting that need and others were kind of falling behind.
1: How did America's nineteenth century Victorian culture shape how these schools were run and organized?
2: Uh, well, it definitely in some ways it it pigeonholed women a little bit, right? I mean, it uh, by the time you reach to the end of the century, there's definitely this focus on let's train women as teachers, let's train women as secretaries. So they kind of became these certain gender roles that I think sort of fit into the Victorian era very well. But certainly at the point of the school's founding, a lot of women were thrilled, right? I mean, here's an opportunity for me to do something other than, you know, raising children, in effect. And so that a lot of women flocked to schools like this, which I think, you know, to be quite honest, I don't doubt that there are probably some colleges that were set up really as almost like a bit of a moneymaker for the college, so degree, not that they didn't want to train women, but Hey, there's, there are women that want to do this. And so obviously those kind of support systems start to be developed, uh, to meet that need. Um, but it's true. I mean, I think you had, um, limited opportunities, even when you got out of college, um, teaching nursing, you know, some of them are, are even still today, you know, female dominated industries. Um, And it wasn't, you know, different in that respect too, but you're right. I mean, that whole Victorian kind of like mindset of, you know, the, the, of what gender roles were, um, certainly had an impact on what was happening. But I, I feel as though like students were very, I mean, not for nothing. I think like a number of women were probably thrilled to get out of the house. Right. I mean, just out from under their parents and like experience like a college life that they knew men had. Um, there was always a link a little bit between Dickinson and Irving. There was always a joke that if there's ever going to be some sort of a uh, soiree or a dance or something like that, the president called up Dickinson and said, could you send some boys over and he'd come down on a train you know, to something at Irving and things like that. So the prospect of also meeting a future husband um, was also on the table a little bit too. Um, so I, I think on one hand, it was a bit of a freedom that women could experience during that time period that they never had before. Um, and then I think other things, you know, not surprisingly grew as, as time went on, other opportunities for different types of schooling and jobs and things like that.
1: Now They say in the book that Mount Holyoke College became a prototype for a lot of women's colleges, but What what hmm. was unique about the ideas that were developing at Mount Holyoke?
2: I think, you know, it's funny. So there's often uh, considered kind of what they call like the seven sister schools of women's colleges. Um, I don't know if I remember all of them off the top of my head, but Mount Holyoke was one, Smith, Wellesley, um, Radcliffe Barnard, all you know, uh, Bryn Mawr, all of them were sort of like this bit of a standard, and all of them were definitely very adamant. And Mary Lyon, who um, established, uh, was the first president Mount Holyoke, was along those lines as well. And as some of that carries through to this day. In fact, I had a staff person here at my library who went to Mount Holyoke recently, and she says, yeah, they take with their history, their curriculum, everything incredibly seriously, uh, but it's still a women's college to this point. Um, I think the the trick, I think, not only for Mount Holyoke, but for women's colleges in general is, number one, convincing parents that this was a good idea. There's a whole movement in the 19th century as women's colleges start to surface that, oh, my word, this is dangerous. Women are fragile creatures. They're supposed to have children someday. They're going to be impotent if they go to college. I mean, there's all these different things. There's a very famous... Harvard professor who put out a um, uh, a book on this subject that influenced, you know, a lot of people in that regard. So not only Mary Lyon, but different uh, college presidents, you know, took that into mindset. So they kind of had to craft a bit of um, your daughters are going to be safe here. You know, this is a safe learning environment. This is uh, this is where the wave of the future is moving. This is what needs to, to happen, that type of thing. But it's a bit of a political game, and I think Mary Lyon knew that knew that as well. Uh, just from her forming, so she was a very, in some ways, rooted in the in Victorian era from the perspective of being sort of a, um, how do I say, almost like controlling operations and making it seem like no, 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 I've got everything under control. Oh, parents are going to send their daughters to me, and I think a lot of college presidents kind of dealt with that as well. But at the same time, also, hey, I'm going to challenge the women that go to my school. And we're going to implement these this type of curriculum and things like that. And it took Mount Holyoke a little while, and I think it took other colleges a while to sort of ramp up to what eventually would be actual college level uh, material. Um, and then Irving, I think Mount Holyoke is formed in 1837. They really started out as a seminary uh, with some college level classes, but they by the time Irving is formed, uh, you know, Mount Holyoke and others are you know well underway with like. You know, what they're trying to do with providing higher education to women.
1: Were there regional differences between in women's colleges between the North and the South and the Midwest?
2: There was, mostly between the North and the South, uh, so not surprisingly. And that was with men's institutions as well, right? Not that you didn't have great schools in the South and terrible schools in the North, but overall you had a larger plethora of opportunities for both men and women going to colleges in the North than you really did in the South. There was also an emphasis. um, A lot of times when you read, you'll find that the first women's college established was the Georgia Female College in the, I think the 1820s. That was really in effect a a high school, um, even though they had a college in their name. And a lot of, uh, there's a chunk of Southern schools that also were set up in effect training certain types of things that really weren't college curricula. So they might be okay, you're going to entertain people at your house for dinner. This is what you do. Or this is the proper way to walk or speak and things like that. And elocution and stuff like that, full disclosure, was happening at Irving too. There was, there's no doubt. I think there were a lot of women's colleges that incorporated that type of thing. I'm willing to bet on one level, again, providing that safety net for like, oh, it's all right for your daughters to come here. Look, we're doing things other schools are doing, or we're doing important things so that when you're, you're from a wealthy home. When your daughter returns, she knows how to, you know, act correctly and speak correctly and all that type of thing. So I think there was a pressure to include that type of thing. Um, it just, I think it was a greater part of the curriculum, uh, in a lot of schools in the South. Um, that, that said, even at Irving, one of the things that developed after a period of time was also a mix of students from different age groups. So they would have, um, almost like prep classes that they would offer for high school students and day classes and, or day students and things like that. So there was definitely this mindset at Irving to, I think some of it was financial to keep the school going and also build future students that would, you know, arrive at the program too. So I think a lot of colleges had their eye on both what the bottom line was, and then also trying to inch up to we're only where they wanted the institution to be, and I think that probably happens with educational institutions now, right? I mean, you, I think a lot of schools are hurting presently, and that are smaller. So part of it is the bottom line: okay, we need a certain number of students to, um, to run the school, and then part of it is also, um, well, here's really where we'd like to be. We really want to challenge our students to get to that point, but maybe they can't quite get there based on what students were learning and. And that's one of the things early on when the school was first founded, you had young women coming into the school that maybe even in high school didn't have certain classes. So you'll find all throughout Irving's history and at a lot of schools, they had to do a lot of prep and um, courses and things like that. that were not college level just to get women up to speed on everything from, you know, foreign language to to uh, greater English instruction or physics or whatever, different kinds of math. You know that type of thing.
1: Irving's first president was Archibald Marlot. Uh, who was he and what impact did he have on the school?
2: Uh, yeah, there's actually not a ton known about him. He um, he was a uh, he was a local minister and uh, he ended up passing away fairly early on in the school's history, which I think was probably the first blow to the school. Uh, one of the things that's unique about Irving's Administrative history is that it's a lot of fits and starts, and I think I think a lot of schools had that issue early on. You're trying to form something, you only have a small student population that's attending, and and things like that. Um, and a lot of colleges and schools were often run by ministers, mostly because they were sometimes along with either doctors or lawyers, the most educated people in a town. And doctors and lawyers, I would argue, probably had enough of of their um, day taken up with with their law practice or 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 with uh uh taking care of people from a medical standpoint whereas ministers i think also education went hand in hand with a lot of things that they were doing so i think a lot of them became a lot of times you know various denominations would set up you know um both uh, both um secondary schools but then certainly like higher education schools too so ministers just naturally um uh, became the heads of those institutions as well. But, uh, but yeah, Marlott passes away and um, the school's a bit in a, in a lurch to, um, to move forward. They end up hiring um, Reverend Eagy, another minister who was running the Cumberland Valley um, Institute, which was a boys' school um, uh, that was just down the road in Mechanicsburg. So I don't doubt that all the trustees knew him at the time. And I also don't doubt that he was probably a logical choice to run the school, given his background uh, as well.
1: How did the Civil War impact the school?
2: Yeah, so prior to the Civil War, as Irving is growing, they are getting students from all over the mid-Atlantic, but also from southern states as well. Um, If you almost want to think about industry in the north um, in general, it gets impacted by what's leading up to the Civil War and after, right? So there's ties that are cut. You have um, factories and things in the North that are being supplied with Southern cotton or tobacco or whatever, and that obviously completely stops. And the same is kind of even true even just if you think about college students too. Um, You have parents a lot less likely or just completely unable to send their daughters to college after the, either during or after the Civil War. there definitely is a bit of a, of a rivalry that sort of starts. There's a story that runs, I think in one of the, there was a long running publication at the school called The Sketchbook, uh, which was named after a Washington Irving publication. And in there, there was a, um, a bit of teasing that some of the Pennsylvania students did to Maryland students singing Maryland, old Maryland during the you know Civil War and things like that. So there's definitely a little bit that happened. Um, but uh, the Civil War came pretty darn close to Mechanicsburg Um, from the perspective that Confederates moved in and captured the town at one point, uh, after the burning of Chambersburg and prior to the battle of Gettysburg. Um, so that happened, uh, toward the end of the school year. And so, uh, the school at the time decided to, they actually did not have a graduation ceremony. I think that was 1863 and ended up just calling, um, graduates into the parlor and handing diplomas out and sending them home on trains. Uh, cause it was a fear that like, who knows what was going to happen when the Confederates laid it in town. Now it was a bit of a peaceful occupation and it didn't last incredibly long. Um, but I think residents had seen what had happened in Chambersburg. and didn't want it happening, happening there. Um, the other interesting story is that Robert Charles Anderson actually came through on the train, speaking to sort of like famous people that came around. So he was the, uh, the quote-unquote defender of Fort Sumter at that started the Civil War. Um, and I think he was riding, if I remember correctly, with Reverend Marlatt on the train. And so they stopped, at, or maybe it was, maybe i with Irving students now that I think about it. Um, and so they actually stopped the train. The train would sometimes stop at uh, Irving College and drop students off. So in addition to train stations in town, sometimes if there was enough students, the train would actually um, make a stop at the college to drop off students. And so, the, um, so uh, Robert Anderson actually met with students and the president, um, I think on his trip back up from Fort Sumter on his way to, um, I'm assuming he was going to Harrisburg, so he maybe he was going to uh, uh, Camp Curtin or something like that, but. Well, take us on
1: campus. If, if we were a new student arriving, uh, what would we see? Uh,
2: well, it's not very big, right? So in the, prior to the turn of the century, uh, there's one building. So if you've been in Mechanicsburg, the the main uh, building, which was called Irving Hall, was it. And that actually was expanded over time. So it's a very, very small building. Um, fair number of students that come just for the day and uh, other students that um, uh, would actually live on campus from a variety of places. And after the Civil War, it's much more the northern mid-Atlantic states. Um, and closer by states than, you know, Virginia or Maryland or other places like that. Um, There's a great lithograph that, oddly enough, the school had a song written for it at one point um, that featured a lithograph of the college uh, on the front. So there's not a lot of trees or anything yet. So it's kind of a bit of a sparse school, but it's a new thing, right? So I think a lot of people that were sending... You know their daughters to school wanted a clean place i wouldn't doubt that a lot of those same daughters also went home on weekends things like that so it was a bit of a new a new atmosphere um again you tended to take a lot of classes both in things like properly learning how to speak like elocution and things like that but certainly like english a lot of british literature um and the feeling was also trying to ramp up into classical uh instruction both um Virgil, Cicero, things like that from both uh, Greek and Roman times and things like that. You probably took Latin. You probably were required to to at least start another foreign language or maybe that was an elective. Um, There was not the movement for uh, physical education yet, so there wasn't a lot of that. Um, And really, for the most part, the student life at that time really revolved around graduation and occasional like little soirees or things that they would have and the publication of the sketchbook. So there wasn't today where there's tons and tons of clubs and groups or, or anything like that. Um, it was a kind of intensive instruction. You went back to your room at night, you studied, you obviously had a very small dining hall. They would have staff that some of which lived on campus and some lived in town that would you know serve meals and things like that. Um, a bit of a different college experience than today.
1: We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast.
0: Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.
1: What what was a normal day like? Was it highly regimented?
2: Oh, yeah, very much so. So I think there was a... uh, more recent graduates uh, into the 20th century talked about the a college bell that would go off um, so that they were very much to a point where they had to be up by a certain amount of time and be into the dining hall at a certain amount of time have breakfast and then move on to like their first class and things like that, so it was very structured again back to the whole point. presence of these schools, including Irving had to convince. Uh, parents to send their daughters to school there. So part of it was like, there wasn't a lot of free time for them to do much else. Uh, there is a funny story though, there was a caretaker at the college later on who kept a large dog and the girls were always sort of afraid of this dog and the dog would bark. So they didn't, A, they didn't want the dog to bark and B, they didn't want the dog to come after them. So that was an enticement to get back to their room as quickly as possible at the end of the day.
1: Now in the 1880s, the school closes down, what happened?
2: Um so a big part of the reason if you, there's a big financial panic that happens in 1873 and there's sort of residual financial issues that happen uh in the United States as a whole um the school's enrollment had started to decline I think to be quite honest I think Reverend Eegee who's running the school at this time is running two institutions at the same time undoubtedly that's not easy um so I think that's also a bit of a challenge for him um and as enrollment declines, the amount of money coming into the school also declines. You also have less students coming to the school post-Civil War for a whole host of reasons. Um, so, yeah, at some point, in fact, the, the records aren't actually even all that clear because they don't survive. So we don't actually know exactly why the school closed. But it seems pretty apparent that there isn't enough income coming in. So the trustees essentially decide to close the school. Um, Iggy, if I remember correctly, actually gets reappointed from... Uh, he was at a church in the Mechanicsburg area, but I think he went to another church uh, elsewhere in Pennsylvania about that same time. So they lose their president at the same time, uh, and it just is impossible for for them to open. But it's primarily financial. A lot of institutions were struggling in the in the early part of the 1880s.
1: Now the school does reopen a few years later, and, and the key figure there is Mary Kessler. Who is she? She was the third president.
2: Yes. So, uh, well, I have to correct you that she only was called principal while she was there, which was a bit of the, uh, the time showing their face, thinking that they had, a, if they had a male director, he would be a president. If it was a female director, she'd just be a principal. But don't let anybody kid you, because Mary Kessler pretty much brought Irving back to life in a lot of ways. She um, her father was also, I think, a Presbyterian minister, if I remember correctly, and she was from the area and had taught at another school I think in Maryland prior to coming to Irving and I think her mission was more or less that all right I'm going to teach these young women we're going to get this school up and running and I'm going to build back students to the school and that's exactly what she did. Um, I think she probably ran herself a little bit into the ground I think in the later part of the 19th century to a point where she probably couldn't handle everything that she was doing anymore um after she gives up the presidency um at irving she i think she may actually i think hang on and teach some classes for a period of time but it isn't long after that that she pretty much like leaves the school and is not um as much involved i don't think i don't think she lives much longer after that so i don't doubt that she um there's a Uh, A comment in one of the sketchbooks saying about how chilly the halls are and that she's running around meeting parents at one point, running in and making sure the kids are getting fed at another point. So I think, you know, akin to what some uh, women presidents or even other presidents were like at these schools, she's doing everything. And I think when you're building it back up from nothing, I think it took its toll on her to, uh, to some degree. But she did it, you know, to her credit. She definitely brought Irving back.
1: Now, after Mary Kessler, E.E. E. Campbell would arrive on the scene and he would have a huge impact on the school. Uh, how, how did he come to arrive at Irving?
2: Um, so I think he hears about the school and I think he was partially recruited to the school, uh, first as a geology professor, uh, I think in 1890. So that's a few years after the school starts back up. And I think it becomes very, very quickly. He was a very charismatic person. And I think it became very evident if it wasn't evident to the trustees prior that, ooh, this guy is going to be our next president. Um, The thing that's very interesting about Irving's history and ultimately leads to its one big factor in its demise is that at the time that Irving is set up, Solomon Gorgas pays for, sets up the school and all throughout its history, it's never owned by in trust by the board of trustees. There's always some person who is actually owning and profiting or not profiting as the case may be from the school. So when Reverend Iggy is, uh, running the school, he actually owns it outright. And so he, um, obviously was definitely looking to divest himself of the school at some point so that he, um, didn't have to own it anymore because I think it was probably a bit of a drain on his finances. There are, there are definitely like, after the panic of 1873, there definitely are, are suggestions that he probably is borrowing money. He came from a relatively wealthy family and I think he had borrowed money from uh, from his father to kind of keep the school going or keep himself solvent, things like that. Um, so E.E. E. Campbell uh, had been at the um, involved with the I think it's the Lloydsville orphan home in Perry County. Uh, And that is where he met uh, one of the board of uh, trustee members, uh, AR Steck, if I remember correctly. Um, And I don't doubt that they had conversations and said, you know what, Campbell, you might be a good fit for our school. That type of thing. Came as a professor and then eventually um, uh, became president. The thing that's interesting about Campbell is he obviously, he had the tools to be a college president. He, had the charisma. He knew how to uh, run a lot of the school and how to uh, set up a lot of things that happened. So the school really goes into its golden age uh, after he becomes president. Um, But there are are questions as it goes along uh, with him because he owns the school. He obviously starts to profit from the school. And is that what should happen with the president? And some people thought, no, other people thought what Campbell was doing was great. Irving never saw this kind of success before. And then um, it was something that the, the trustees certainly wrestled with at different times.
1: Because the the presidents that were owning the school, it seems that their personalities had perhaps an outsized impact on the actual school itself.
2: Oh, that's very true, yeah. Um, I'll tell you one funny story, and this sort of sums up E.E. Campbell in a lot of ways. Um, The um, the Simpson Library has a really large um, panoramic photograph. And there used to be these cameras that existed in the 19th century that would be set up and you would start to run the camera and it would run and run the film over like a long panorama till it ended on the other side. A lot of times postcards are made this way um, and things like that. So there's a very funny uh, panoramic photograph that exists, and on the one side you see E.E. E. Campbell standing with the, the students, and then as you get to the other side of the picture, you see the same students with E.E. E. Campbell again, although E.E. Campbell tries to have himself look differently. He's wearing a hat and sunglasses and things like that or whatever. So I think that summed him up uh, very well. Um, one student commented that he uh, picked a dandelion off of the uh, ground and stuck it in his lapel every day, and he sort of looked at dandelions the way Lincoln said God looked at the common people—that God must uh, love the common people so much that's why he made so many of them—and he felt the same way about dandelions and wore one on his suit.
1: Now, during World War One, uh, the school canceled its German language uh, courses. Uh, why? What was going on?
2: Yeah, there's a big movement all throughout World War One. So obviously Germany is one of the central powers that's at war with uh, France and Britain and ultimately the United States. Um, and so there was not a lot of um, strong uh, German support uh, in this country, certainly as after the sinking of the Lusitania and as the um, the war starts to get going. In fact, in a lot of cities, Newark, New Jersey is a good example that um, you had streets, uh, street names get changed from German names to American names. If you remember the whole "Freedom Fry" thing from a number of years ago uh, with the French, like that kind of thing certainly happened as well. And unless there were areas that had really strong German um, people in local politics and things like that, like and Chicago and a lot of the Midwestern cities did have that. Um, A lot of other cities, that kind of stuff disappeared. And the same thing happened in Irving as well. Um, Most of the people of German descent that were going to Irving were Protestant Germans that came, you know, a hundred or more years before. They weren't uh, the Germans currently that were coming into Ellis Island and other places like that. So there isn't a groundswell of support for Germany per se. Um, And therefore, it was very common for things like Uh, German history not to get taught, German language to be scrapped, um, all sorts of things like that. Um, I think a lot of people associate that a little bit with World War II, but it happened much more during World War I. Uh, I think World War II tended to get blamed a little bit more on Hitler and the Nazi party, whereas World War I, I think, in fairness to um, uh, the central powers, World War I really got started because it was a powder keg of a bunch of different countries that were arming up and had alliances that just kicked off after Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. World War II is a bit of a different uh, perspective, where I think people felt like um, there was a party that sort of took control of a country and and uh, ran with things. So you, I think that's why in World War One you definitely see much more of like an anti-German sentiment. Um, not that there wasn't during World War Two, but um, but that's why that kind of stuff happened.
1: Now you mentioned before that that the railroad coming through Mechanicsburg would sometimes stop at the school, and it, how did the Cumberland Valley Railroad uh, offer opportunities for for students?
2: Well, I think if if I was a student at the time, I think a student would say like, well, it's great because I can go into Harrisburg on the train, do shopping in downtown Harrisburg, <laughs> things like that. So you had that was the automobile of its day for the most part. That's how people got different places, and the Cumberland Valley Railroad had. Um, numerous stops up and down between going, I probably most students went either home or to Carlisle or to uh, Harrisburg, but um, that was how people got where they were going. And, you know, really took much more into the 20s for that to sort of dissipate to a point where people were beginning to uh, be able to afford and own and run their own cars and things like that. Um, but that was, um, that was, I guess, from a student perspective, that was your means to uh, whatever type of social activities you were hoping to have, maybe it was at Dickinson, or maybe it was in Harrisburg, or whatever.
1: One of the key programs at the school was its music program. How important was that?
2: Yeah, it became very important after a while. So one of the things that Campbell struggles with at the school while he's while he's there, and he's there from you know the 1890s uh, until his death in 1926, and his focus is that he wanted to have he wanted to really really emphasize this sort of classical education that he had when he was young and he went when he went to school and he wanted that for women as well and but as you move into the 20th century there are programs that start to develop that really attract uh women to the school and one of them is a music conservatory part of it is also because uh Uh, Mr. Harry Harper, who was the director of the conservatory, was an attractive young man. So I think that drew some students in. But beyond that, it was starting to train various women to be music teachers and organists in churches and things like that. And again, it was another outlet for women and to have an occupation uh, outside of the home, uh, a bit of freedom and things like that. And the music conservatory really takes off to a point where you're not, It's not just vocal music or piano music. You're having students get trained in different types of instruments, music theory. Um, They are starting to perform at different things around town. Uh, They're putting on performances at the college. So it becomes, on the one hand, uh, a means to bring students in because it is a vocation that they can do outside uh, of the house. And on the other side, it ends up becoming a bit of a social aspect, too. So you find that in addition to the program itself, there are music clubs and glee clubs that form. uh, And there's other clubs, too. But it's also having like this big social outlet as well. But I would say if you see advertisements for the school in the 10s and 20s, you definitely see advertisements for the Music Conservatory. And it's drawing a lot of students to the school. Um, The school actually pivots on its curriculum uh, quite a bit throughout the 20th century, and they definitely sort of set up a whole music curriculum just for students from a perspective of, all right, this is what you need to get trained in. Almost if you want to think about music schools, even at the present day, uh, there are some schools you go to, and it's an intensive study in classical music or other types of music and things like that. And I think Irving was building uh, to that point and was very successful. It was probably the single most important um, course curriculum that drew students in.
1: Now some of the key social institutions at the school were literary societies. What did these societies do?
2: Um, well, back from the uh, uh, the original time, these literary societies were sort of like something for these students to do. So something where maybe you had a staff member or a teacher who was a a um, like a liaison of some respect but a bit, on one level was like a bit of a social atmosphere, but also for students who had an interest in poetry or literature and things like that or creative writing, it was an outlet for that. I don't know that there were courses as much on that. You may have studied, you know, Walt Whitman or some you know great British poets or things like that, but you probably were not writing your own uh, creative work on a, as much of a regular basis, but these literary societies and things provided for that. Um, they would often have, um, again, like events and things that students would look forward to where students would read their own work or if a student was writing an essay, sometimes they would write um, things based on almost like a summation of a particular author's career or whatever, things like that. So, again, it was a bit of an outlet for the for students socially. And I think from the perspective of administrators, it was still deemed an educational um enterprise that students can do. Um, I think as you move into the 20th century and then you have the whole movement of like physical education and other things like that, you have students have still some, you still have some students have an interest in those types of things, but it, it starts to become one of many things that are offered at a school and it continues all the way to this day.
1: Were the students active in the women's suffrage movement in the early 20th century?
2: Um, I think it depended. So I think you had some students who definitely were, um, but I don't think it was a hotbed. Uh, I think Mount Holyoke, Wellesley, those schools definitely. Uh, but I don't think you had so many of the students that were coming um, from South Central Pennsylvania or Pennsylvania in general. So, you know, you would certainly have some who were very interested in that movement going forward. Um, there were mock elections and things that were held. I never got the sense that it was something where they, students were protesting on campus or, or anything like that, or in town. Um, on the one hand, I think Campbell was so beloved by both the parents and students that there wasn't going to be some radical nature that happens against him, but I think also in general speaking, I I wouldn't be surprised that Irving probably, if you were if you were a young woman who was very adamant about um, suffrage and things like that, you were probably going to a school in the city. You're going to Barnard. You're going to Radcliffe. You were going to Mount Holyoke, Bryn Mawr. These other schools that um, had a bit more of a liberal curriculum and and uh, were kind of like a place, almost like a I don't want to say a melting pot, but like a laboratory for those types of ideas to to bubble up and, uh, you know, train the young women that were essentially a big part of that movement.
1: Now, E. Campbell was a longtime president of the school. Uh, when did he pass away, and what happened to the school afterwards?
2: Yeah, so he died in 1926, um, and the school just didn't recover. Um There were members of the board of trustees who served as presidents. Um, They were also, again, uh, clergy um, themselves. And there were definitely I think the school continued for about um, three years or two and a half years after his death, but it really couldn't survive him. On the one hand, he was such a monumental figure that he was difficult to replace. Um, One of the things that the board and the alums tried to do is there had always been talks. um, So Campbell had been a Presbyterian. And there was always talks about the Presbyterian church taking over the school. And I think that that came very, very close to happening at numerous times, including after the school closed, or right as the school closed. And uh, it just the last few pieces didn't happen. And therefore, it just didn't. uh, It just didn't take place. So part of it is definitely Campbell's personality. It's it's hard to replace, you know, a larger-than-life figure. But he also owned the school. So his family now and his estate owned the school. And so it was a bit clumsy to try to purchase the school from the family and extricate that. Not that the family didn't want to, it wanted to keep the school necessarily, but just that it, the trustees really needed to own it and needed to, you know, reimbursed the Campbell family for that. Um, there's a very interesting part of its history, which I think, uh, I want to say it's about 19, the 1910s or 19-teens. There's a trustee by the name of William Geese who actually is fairly famous in his own right. He became pretty much the father of uh, modern uh, educat- educational dentistry. Uh, he was out of New York. His wife had gone to Irving. And, you know, he became a trustee of the school. Very quickly, he starts to question, why does Campbell own this school? This makes no sense at all. Um, Gee's right or wrong kind of ran afoul of the rest of the board of trustees, including Campbell. And within a year or so, he resigns from the board and doesn't pursue anything more. But for the course of the year he's there, he, you know, maybe rightly so, is saying, why does this exist? And at numerous times, the board... Puts up proposals to actually purchase the school from Campbell, but there's no capital from which the board has that they can even uh, compensate the Campbell for. So at the point that when he passes away, they've had less of an opportunity with capital at that point to um, to pay the Campbell family. And there just isn't. You know, I think they kind of had some band-aids with a few presidents and, you know, 27 and 28 and 29, but it just, it wasn't enough to keep the school going. The alumni tries to um, restart the school um, a couple of different times through fundraisers and things like that um, in years after the school closed, but by the 40s, um, sort of you have the depression also happening almost immediately after the school closes, so there isn't a lot of money for a lot of people and maybe you don't have a lot of people sending women or their daughters to college anyway. Um, so by the forties and the start of world war two, it's pretty much a done deal that the school has done. Did the school have an endowment? I, not to my knowledge, if it did, I'd never found record of it. Um, I think they had a bank account with some money in it, but that was part of, uh, part of the mindset of let's, you know, let's divest the school, uh, from the president and then more or less form and set up endowment. And I think Campbell may have tried to do that on his own in sort of setting up some means for the school to, uh, um, have some sort of a endowed fund that could help fund the school, but it just never got off the ground.
1: Uh, with the school closing, what, what was its legacy?
2: Um, that's a good question. Um, um, I think, you know, on the one hand, it's a bit of a footnote to history of Mechanicsburg, the fact that it was there. Um, People uh, probably to this day don't even realize that it had been there. Um, I think, you know, to their credit, the the alumni of the school definitely tried to do different things. They would actually have... um, um, even in the early part of the 20th century, there were regular, uh, the alums would get together and have uh, regular like uh, annual dinners and things like that and do things to help fund things at the school. After the school closed, they actually started a scholarship at Mechanicsburg high school, uh, which was there for, I think it's, I don't know if it's still there, but, um, but they would, you know, fund a female student to go to college um, uh, every year. So they would do things like that. Now, at the time when I first started working on this book in the 90s, the remaining graduates and students that still were alive were in the 90s themselves. So now we're to a point where even a lot of their children probably have passed away. Um, So it's interesting to say like, what is the legacy? It's a good question. I think on the one hand, I would say that the school did its part to sort of move women's education forward along with all the other women's colleges that, uh, were present. And the fact that it happened where it did, I think maybe made, uh, you know, the South central Pennsylvania, maybe a bit more aware. I know there were other women's colleges that also formed nearby Wilson college in chambersburg is another example, uh, which was formed a little bit later. So I think it played its part for, uh, women in general and for their higher education. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. I think it's a lot of small things, um, as opposed to major big um, developments that you can point directly to the college for.
1: Well, we've been speaking with Chad Lineweaver. He is the author of That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones, The History of Irving College. <laughs> Chad, thanks for joining me.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate it.
0: Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books as well as other PCN programs are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.